Welcome to the Creative Conversations. In today's world of increasing intolerance, sometimes honest conversation between us is the only way forward. Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism, is an initiative of the Sweden-based nonprofit organization Stories for Society, which engages in transformational storytelling. The purpose of this initiative is to give rise to a force for peace by building a global network of established authors whose life stories, work, and commitments demonstrate and engage the impact of intolerance, extremism, and war. It is through the arts and our practice of rigorous and honest conversation that we can make a difference. This series records conversations between creatives for this purpose. Elizabeth Rossner is a best-selling novelist, poet, and essayist living in Berkeley, California. Her newest book of nonfiction, Survivor Cafe, The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory, was featured on NPR's All Things Considered and in the New York Times. It was also a finalist for a National Jewish Book Award. Her three acclaimed novels have been translated into nine languages and have received prizes in the U.S. and in Europe. A graduate of Stanford University, the University of California at Irvine, and the University of Queensland in Australia, she lectures and teaches writing workshops internationally. Learn more about her at elizabethrossner.com. Liz, welcome to the Creative Conversations. Thank you, Julie. It's great to be with you. Now, you're going to do a reading for us from Survivor Cafe. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit about that and why you chose this particular passage. Strangely, I think most people, when they read a selection from the book that they've just published, they want to read from the beginning. But I'm choosing a section that's from the epilogue because it really contains one of the messages I want to leave people with after they've completed the book. And it begins by referencing a writer I greatly admire and whose work was frequently mentioned in my book elsewhere, in, in addition to the passage I'm reading from. And his name is Jorge Semprun. And he, like my father, was a prisoner in Buchenwald concentration camp. And I'll start with this page. In Buchenwald's survivor, Jorge Semprun's book, Literature or Life, he writes about the eternal wind of the Edersberg and how the smoke and the snow will never leave him. I believe the wind has entered me too. Maybe not the smoke, but the snow. The sound of people screaming. And I want to say to you now that this sound will never leave me. How can I make it so that it will also never leave you? I ask myself, why is it so necessary, so urgent, for me not only to take it into myself, not really, not take it in, it's already inside me, I had no choice, but also to pour that wind into you too, as well as the ashes and the snow. Here is part of the answer. Because we are all obligated to remember, imperfectly and uncomfortably, this duty is incumbent upon each of us. Because it's the truth of being human, the monstrous and the divine, as every philosopher and historian and poet, every prophet and parent and teacher and healer, every clear-eyed observer has ever noted since we first began to study ourselves. We are both lost and holy, 
we are neither. We own everything that happened to us and everything that happened to others before us. That includes holding guns and holding babies and watching the ones with guns shooting the babies and then the mothers and the mothers holding babies watching and the babies yet to be born watching. This is a book with a mission. Mm-hmm. It's to pour the wind into you too, as you say, as well as the ashes and the snow. And it's about trying to bring about a, a consciousness of the reasons that that mission is necessary, mm-hmm. a mission that connects the past to the present, mm-hmm. to the future. Mm-hmm. Those are all there very strongly in the language. First of all, though, you had no choice mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. you know, bearing the eternal wind of, of the Edersberg in you. Could you tell us a bit about that, a bit about your background and the reasons you wrote this book? Sure. Uh, yeah, I do believe that um, now that science seems to be catching up with what many of us have known intuitively for a very long time, I do believe that we really carry in our genetic makeup, in our physical and maybe even metaphysical construction, we carry the residue of the past, both literally and figuratively. And as the daughter of two Holocaust survivors, not just my father and his experience in the concentration camp, as I mentioned, but my mother who was born in Vilna and was in the Vilna ghetto with her parents and then in hiding in the Polish countryside. I carry those experiences and and that is true whether or not my parents even spoke about them. My father had much more capacity to talk about what happened to him, to talk about what he experienced as a child and as an adolescent. My mother, she carried her trauma in a different way and was less able to share it with us without going into what we quickly understood was a kind of re-traumatization. Not that we knew any of those words at the time, but just it clearly upset her too much to talk about it. So my siblings and I all kind of learned that it was better to not ask her questions, but that you could ask our father questions. And and what I'm saying in a, in a roundabout way is that the history that my parents lived through was carried in everything about them, in the way they parented us, in the way they lived their lives. And so I was witness to all of that. But I also think I had a certain kind of hypervigilance. I had a certain kind of wariness and mistrust of the world. But I also had this deep curiosity to know things and to find out what was hidden, what was secret. And so writing this book and and writing all of my work, really, anyone who looks even at my previous, my fiction, my poetry, will find that I'm always searching for a kind of elusive understanding of what made me, what shaped me, what what gave me the vision that I have or the fear that I have or the empathy that I carry, the compassion for other people's suffering? How, how did all of that grow out of 
what I was born with, what I was born into. The word epigenetics is, is relatively new to most of us. It's the term now for the study of the scientific measurement of the modification of certain aspects, certain expressions of our DNA that we inherit from our ancestors and from, in this case, trauma that our parents experienced can show up as a kind of post-traumatic residue inside of us and subsequent generations, despite the fact that we literally have not lived through trauma, but we are inheriting the effects of trauma on those who came before us. My hope is that this actually isn't only something that people will read and think, oh, that was Elizabeth's experience, that's Elizabeth's story, I find that so interesting or moving, but that really people will look inside of themselves and see where is the echo for them, where is the resonance, because I'm not really intending to single myself out or even single out my generation, but to create a sense of connection and what we share. And I share that with you really deeply. And for some people that would seem so surprising and and really nonsensical almost that, that if you represent the other side, what would that give us to share? But I think what we share is that we carry things that we didn't ask for. We, we carry what was given to us without our permission, and even without our parents' permission. They didn't want to give this to us. Yes, that's right. There's so much to unpack here of what you've said, and what you talk about, you know, secrets, and um, trying to, you know, this curiosity mm-hmm. uh, of finding out what this hidden secret is that, that you, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps mm-hmm. in your family, it wasn't equally a secret as, as it was in mine. There were, There was a strong, deliberate effort to hide the family's past. In your family, it was more perhaps that the experience was so traumatic that it was difficult to talk about it all. Mm -hmm. To go back to your mission, which you've just been talking about again, which is try to, to not just talk about your story and your experience, but to try to get other people to, in a way, join you Mm -hmm. in taking on this common past. Uh, And I guess you don't just mean the Holocaust, by that you mean a lot of other aspects of human experience and history, because you cover a lot in your book. You go beyond the Holocaust. You go to many different violent episodes in human history. Yeah, that, that choice was very deliberate. I I knew, and in fact, again, if, if people look at my previous work, you'll, you'll get clues about, about my interest in connecting the dots. I almost never want to exclusively talk about the Holocaust as if in some paradoxical way we own not just Jews but maybe Jews and Germans together own, you know, the most atrocious chapter of history of human history. My sorrowful lesson has been that when you begin to study genocide, when you study atrocity and and human violence and the perpetration of violence, you recognize that that this is this is a recurrent thing in the human story. So when I was writing Survivor Cafe, I really wanted to include this shared human experience of inheriting tragedy and how that means that we can 
we can have more consciousness about this not being unique, even though each event is unique. And I want to stress that too, because my father and many other Holocaust survivors get very nervous and and I think understandably anxious when when you start to maybe blur distinctions and say, oh, the Holocaust, you know, wasn't so special. I mean, I, I do insist on the uniqueness of the Holocaust and the uniqueness of the genocide in Cambodia that was perpetrated by the Khmer Rouge and the uniqueness of what happened in Rwanda and the uniqueness of the African-American experience of enslavement in, in America and elsewhere, the uniqueness of each war and each veteran of war. So I'm, I'm simultaneously talking about the uniqueness of each event and what those events share in common. What you do that kind of brings them together is to say that these are all our common history. Mm -hmm. They belong to all of us. Mm Your book sets out to try to get people to appreciate that and become conscious of it and take it in. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's something I've also been engaged in, but it's a very difficult thing to do because, uh, in our cases, it's, it's very clear why we see this as, as so essential. We were, we didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. Our lives were formed by certain historical event, events in, in a very, intense, sharp, and clear way. But for others who don't at least feel equally as impacted by the past uh, as we do, um, how can you convince people to bear the wind, the ashes, the snow, and the screaming within them? Mm -hmm. It's a very tough thing to ask people to do. Agreed. I really agree with you. I think... um there is a certain luxury in not in not feeling compelled to look at this history and and even sometimes an enviable position i might say that that i think you probably have experienced at various times in your life where you'll look at someone else who seems to be sort of floating joyously through their <laughs> their world as if really you know all is well and that the human being that they are or that they're surrounding themselves with, you know, they just see the, the goodness in humanity. And and it's not that I don't see that also. I, I think those words I chose to read to you and, and that I so carefully put down in the pages of my book, I say that that the monstrous and the divine are in all of us and that it can be very convenient to only want to look at one or the other. But I think that's just an incomplete view. I, I have to say, I'm I'm biased in favor of of being more honest and and more holistic. Let's say about who we are as a species. And I think it takes a certain level of denial. I have to say, real denial to ignore the human story in its full darkness as well as light. So. It's not that I'm trying to, you know, shake people and insist that they see the world the way I do. It's just I'm hoping that I can nudge people to wake up and open their eyes to to something that, like I say, is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to look at it. And 
and we're all doing it imperfectly. I use that word as well for a reason. There's no exactly right way to view oneself and one's family history. You know, my siblings have a different view of our family than I do. That's that's just inevitable. But I think that if you live in a neighborhood where, you know, there are homeless people on the street, you can you can drive by them and and pretend that has nothing to do with you or you can ask yourself what role you play in the system that that created their homelessness. I I feel like it's our collective responsibility. And I'm not saying that, that we all know how to solve these problems. I don't. I definitely don't. But I think our consciousness, at the very least, can open to trying to understand, trying to look at the hard things that, that we don't want to look at. You also go into how we can look into these hard things and how we can express ourselves. And that's a much more difficult step in a way, because you can choose to acknowledge something. You can choose to acknowledge slavery or the Holocaust and your your consciousness about it, you can acknowledge, but but then to take the next step to somehow express it, to write it down, or to express it in some sort of form of art or or verbal communication, it's it's a, in a way a much harder step mm-hmm. because. And I wanted to go back to your quote of Saul Friedlander, where he says, "That which remains essentially inarticulable and unrepresentable." that which continues to exist as unresolved trauma just beyond the reach of meaning. Mm. Uh, I mean, what he's talking about there is this this problematic that the events we're talking about, certainly all of those you've named, are the scale of... Look, I'm, I'm struggling with the mm-hmm. words. <laughs> the scale of human tragedy and misery, and none of these words that I'm saying are enough right. to characterize those events none of them suffice right when it is like that how can we remember how Mm -hmm. can we express ourselves about remembrance when expressing ourselves always lands in a space that doesn't feel that feels insufficient Mm -hmm. and almost illegitimate Mm -hmm. it's a great question you know when i was about two-thirds of the way through writing the book and researching the book and assembling what, as you know, is, is a kind of collage of of vastly disparate pieces, I became so overwhelmed by the insufficiency, as you say, of what I was trying to do. And so I wrote what turned out to be called the alphabet of inadequate language yes, that I that I, I placed that. at the beginning of the book. And and it really is, you know, this way that I had to just name it out loud that I know I'm not doing justice to any of this with mere words. And so even when you struggle to find words to say what can't be said, or you you find it a struggle to even say how much of a struggle it is, I also think about, you know, every day now I'm seeing a new film, a new book, a new documentary, a new um, adaptation of an old story. We are constantly trying to find the shape and the 
the delivery system for stories and human experience that are so epic and vast, like the Holocaust. The Holocaust really always defies representation. It, it always will, I think. Elie Wiesel said, a novel about Majdanek is either not a novel or not about Majdanek. Jorge Semprun, who I referenced earlier, Literature or Life, that book is all about his wrestling with trying to write about what he experienced as a prisoner in Buchenwald and constantly failing, and that if he succeeded in writing it, then he was somehow denying the experience, but honoring the experience meant not writing about it. And that dilemma, that paradox, I think maybe you can say it's about all art, that art is a mere representation, but I also think it's fascinating that, and I don't have the statistics for this because I don't know that it's ever been measured, but my generation of, of people who grew up with survivor parents, we are overrepresented in the arts and we are overrepresented in the therapeutic and healing professions that we're, we're trying constantly to emote and express what we carry. And we're also trying to help other people emote and express and, and heal from what they're carrying. So this urgent need, it, it's always going to fall short, but we do it anyway. You know, I think that also is the human condition. And what do you say to those who say that your need to express yourself about the Holocaust is is selfish. Mm. You didn't live through that time. You didn't experience it. Uh, somebody from Vietnam wrote to me and and said I was terribly selfish in my um, you know during my travels through Poland to interview uh, survivors of my grandfather's violence. It was all just about me. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a way, my response to that is, well, yes, it was about me. So what do you say to those people? Mm who argue that we need to let past be past. You're just hurting people with your need to express yourself. Yeah. I, it's a brutal, it's a brutal conundrum. I, I actually feel a lot of compassion for somebody who knows where that question came from in this person. Maybe this person had already experienced that by trying to look at his or her own historical trauma they felt that they were being shut out or, you know, I know there's also a kind of, this is slightly different than what you're saying, but there's, there's often an accusation leveled against people like me writing about the Holocaust and speaking about it that, you know, why do you get all the airtime? What about X? You know, what about my people suffering? Why don't you talk about the indigenous population of Australia more? Or why don't you talk about, the atrocities committed in your own country or, you know, I mean, the whataboutism, it's a big ism in our lifetime right now. And I understand it. I appreciate that it feels like sometimes I do actually fear I'm being self-centered. I don't know the selfish. (laughs) I say selfish was the dirtiest word in my family vocabulary, my father's experience in the concentration camp would always be referenced in this way of, if you were selfish, you didn't survive, you know, and that was his view. But, but I've come to believe that there, there's a, something that a therapist of mine once called enlightened self-interest, 
and that the work you've done, Julie, to unearth and uncover and and bring to light the secrets and what was hidden by your family, that wasn't just for yourself. That was that was on behalf of other people who were carrying a, a load of of shame that they couldn't even give a name to, or a load of kind of free-floating anxiety and guilt about what happened, who did what, and, and why won't anyone tell me, and maybe it was my family. And I think that turns out to, in many ways, be a gift you are offering. I don't see it as selfish. I see it as as a form of service. And maybe not everyone can see it that way. And maybe they have blinders on from their own issues. I, I think that we each choose, you know, everyone gets to choose how much they delve and how much they they avoid. I reject that notion that we're being selfish. I think we're trying to do something that's that's hard and that's bigger than us. And maybe there's an interesting answer to what we're discussing in a, in a quote I'd like to share from the author Capca Casabona, who wrote in her recent book, To the Lake, unless we become aware of how, how we carry our own legacies, we too may become unwitting agents of destruction. Yeah, it's the oldest motive for any kind of psychotherapy and any kind of looking into the unconscious is that when it's when it's repressed, when it's buried, it rules us and it actually causes us to behave in ways that maybe aren't aren't so useful or beneficial. So I, I absolutely agree with that. That's a beautiful way of stating it. I wanted to go to epigenetics mm. because that's been a, a debated field. Um, as I was Googling before our interview, I came to a New York Times article from 2018, an article that largely dismisses the idea that trauma leaves a mark on our genes and, and claiming that the evidence is circumstantial at best. First of all, what do you think of that? And if, if it's true, um, are we having the wrong conversation about inter intergenerational trauma that prevents us from understanding it? When I think back to what I've read about the early days of, of post-traumatic stress syndrome disorder, when that was first being named back in the 1980s when veterans from the war in Vietnam were presenting with all of these symptoms and, and PTSD was essentially a new diagnosis, even though we knew about shell shock from World War One, and we knew about all sorts of trauma from all wars, PTSD as an official diagnosis, there was a lot of debate about that at the time. And there was a lot of skepticism about, is this real? And how do you measure it? And who can really say, is there enough evidence to prove? And so I feel like this, this debate about epigenetics is somewhat similar. It's very hard to measure these things, these expressions of inherited trauma. At the same time, I don't think that means they're not real. And it is hard to differentiate between an inherited trauma that, that is behavioral because I grew up in a family with, you know, a mother who suffered from bipolar disorder and a father who had nightmares. And, you know, maybe it was my exposure to their behavior that, that caused me to have a certain kind of high anxiety level. But it, it appears to be that, that these children and grandchildren of traumatized 
adults, traumatized parents, when they present with PTSD, even if they didn't hear a word or even if they didn't grow up with their family, that seems to me strong evidence. And yet at the same time, I don't feel like I'm trying to defend the science or defend the term. I think what's more important is to look at just what it means, what it represents, what it says to us about our choices. And the woman that I cite in my book, um, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who is one of the, the people who argue strongly about epigenetics in Holocaust survivor families, epigenetic transmission of trauma. And she says, look, this isn't this isn't to say that we are all doomed by this. If we believe, and w there is evidence that people are changed biologically by going through traumatic experience, especially over a long period of time, if your cortisol levels have been shut off or over overproduced, biologically you can change again. So this actually isn't a hopeless condition. It's a way of naming what's true, naming what's present, and then addressing it. Yes, and I also think that I mean, the idea of turning it around uh, and turning it into mm -hmm. a service to society, as we've been discussing earlier, right. is one of the positive dimensions of this. Right. Acceptance of it and then trying to find a transformational dynamic for turning something that's traumatic into responsibility or consciousness or, or whatever else you want to call it is the idea. And it can make, can make quite a big contribution to society as you've made with Survivor Cafe. And as you've made with your work as well. I, I really believe that, that our mission is shared in this way. Yeah. And, and hopefully it yeah. is transformational and we may not, we may not know how it's affecting others. We may not see that evidence that we that we seek, but I I do want to believe that that it does make a difference somewhere mm -hmm. somehow. I'm going to go to uh, probably the most difficult zone of conversation I've listed down uh, here. I want to quote from your your book here where you say, "I believe we are obligated." to listen to all of these stories and to try, against every instinct, to stop ourselves from judging the perpetrators. So the question I have for you is, um, what is it like speaking with me, a descendant of the perpetrators, about all of this? Your family has had to surmount an understandable resistance to visiting Germany, speaking the German language, touching anything connected to the perpetrators of the Holocaust. Are there things you need to overcome in conversation with me, or is it is no problem for you? Uh, I think you've mentioned that you see a shared mission uh, between us, but but I think it's um, it's interesting to discuss this. I've had this conversation with someone else um, who has, is in a similar situation as you, and um, I think it's important to take up, not least as there's so much polarity in our societies today, and, and I think we can contribute something with a discussion like that. I really appreciate you asking the question so eloquently and, and sensitively. And, you know, to me, the great paradox is that I feel I have more in common with you than with a contemporary of mine who is embracing 
Nazi ideology. I mean, you have you have made a deep practice of looking into the history inside your own family and and naming it in a way that that could appear to make you complicit, but you're anything but complicit. I mean, you you could have been complicit by keeping the secret, but you did the opposite. You exposed it. So to me, you know, that that deeply connects me with you and and makes me not forget that our ancestors were on opposite sides of that battlefield, if you will, a, a metaphoric and a literal battlefield. But where they stood is different from where you and I are standing. The bigger, harder question for me is, how is it possible that there are people in this moment in time who are choosing to rally around a fascistic leader in my country who are choosing to rally around white supremacy in this moment and who are not just spouting rhetoric that's hateful toward others, but who are enacting policy and and hoping to see harm done to individuals and groups and entire races. I mean, that horrifies me more than anything you can tell me about what your ancestors did. I'm talking about people in my lifetime. Do, do you see why I'm bringing that in? I mean, yes. so for me, this question of, you know, can I look at you and, and, and see someone who's like me, you and I are so much alike. I feel alienated and separate and horrified by people that, you know, may even carry my similar ethnic background or even even descendants of survivors who are supporting a white supremacist ideologue in America right now. That terrifies me. Well, thank you for that answer. It's a tough question, but I think uh, an interesting and, and a necessary one and a fruitful one also. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to the intercultural dimensions of Survivor Cafe because I don't think I've ever read anyone else crossing the oceans and uh, historical periods and um, events uh, in the way that you do mm-hmm. with this question of trauma. I've just heard that your uh, book will be published in in South Korea. What types of conversations do you expect you'll encounter there? It's so fascinating to me because I was just thinking, um, as you were saying that, about the parts of the book where I talk about Japan and my country's dropping of, of bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the traumatic residue of that. And and how there are American readers of my book who are uncomfortable with me connecting that with anything else because they see that as still so defensible and so, um, well, they have all sorts of rationales for why it was necessary and the right thing to do and all of that, which I don't agree with, but that's my position. I gave a presentation on, at Google headquarters in Mountain View, and, and at the end of the presentation, I showed an image of of Kintsugi, which I reference in the book, which some people might already know is is the Japanese term for um, the repairing of broken pottery by fitting the pieces back together and and using a gold a gold glue to to actually highlight where the broken places were. 
and that this is considered a really high art form of not trying to disguise the breakage, but actually show that the beautiful broken object is even more beautiful when it's been reassembled with its breakage. And and for me, that's an emblem of, of the human spirit and what happens to us after we've been through something difficult and and how we can kind of illuminate that part of ourselves. And so I was talking about that at Google, and, and during the Q&A, a man asked me a question. Well, he prefaced the question by saying that in Korea, that image of broken pottery represents the Japanese invasion of Korea in the, I forget which century, I want to say the 16th century or 17th century, in which the Japanese invaders shattered all of the Korean pottery, destroyed their ceramics, and then stole or, you know, apprehended the Korean pottery making practice and brought it back to Japan. And and so for him, it represented something really different historically. And I was so moved by what I learned just by him saying that and, and him calling to my attention this idea that an image that I think means one thing could mean something very different. So, you know, two years later, a year and a half later, when I find out that my book is, is going to be translated into Korean, I think about that conversation and, and it makes me even more curious. What will the Koreans see and hear and receive when they read my work? And, and will that echo arise up for them as well? And it, it reminds me that I'm always learning, you know, <laughs> You, you think you're doing a cross-cultural communication. You think you're absorbing and including a multicultural viewpoint. But I didn't know that until he pointed that out. Yeah. It'll be fascinating to hear about how this mm -hmm. uh, is received and how it lands in uh, South Korea. And you'll have to tell me more about that. <laughs> but I wanted to wind up our conversation with a question where, that we always ask authors who uh, join us on the creative conversations what do we do now you know what is the the role of the children and the grandchildren of the survivors and perpetrators of the holocaust in this new time because we are in a in a new time uh, in many perspectives mm -hmm. uh, your dad is turn, turning 90 right uh, 91, 91. Yeah. and um and where, where do we find our conviction you know, to to fulfill that role. And the other mm -hmm. question is, what is the role of authors writing in the shadows of war and genocide? Mm -hmm. So it's really the question asked from the perspective of of you as the the child of of Holocaust survivors, and 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 then you as an author. Mm -hmm. What can you do now? What can we do now? Mm -hmm. It's it's such a profound question, and I have to say that probably my answer is is always the same and always changing. I think for myself, I, every time I, I finish a book that that is in some ways devoted to this question, I think, okay, I've answered it. I've, I've done what I could. And then the next project turns out to be a continuation. And the, the work I'm doing now is on the subject of deep listening and and the ways that listening deeply can help us connect with one another. And so 
it does refer back to what it was like for me growing up as a child with conversations spoken in languages I didn't learn or was prevented from learning, <laughs> of listening to what wasn't being said, of of feeling not heard myself, feeling not listened to. And so I think for myself as an author, I'm I'm following my questions. I'm following I'm following the things that I still want to know and still want to understand. And that's not always easy, but for me it's necessary. And so what I would say to other people is is just try and, you know, this is this is from Rilke. It's sort of a, a bad paraphrasing of of Rilke saying, you know, try to love the questions themselves. You know, notice what are the questions that haunt you. What are the questions you keep coming back to over and over again that don't seem to have answers or that you think you found an answer and then and then another question pops up instead? You know, to just trust that those questions are leading you somewhere and and to see if you have the courage to follow them. Well, that's a magnificent answer, Liz. <laughs> thank, Thanks. thank you so much for joining me in this conversation mm, it's such a pleasure and i really appreciate all of all of the preparation and sensitivity that you that you bring to this dialogue it's it's really beautiful and, and inspiring to me thank you you've been listening to the creative conversations a production of voices between stories against extremism to learn more about our work please visit our website at storiesforsociety.com.